keep that Bible passage open. The story of Noah is the story of a new beginning. The story of Noah is the story of a new beginning. We've just sung, I believe in the resurrection. I believe that we'll rise again. The, the story of Noah is very much its own story about a new beginning, but it foreshadows a new beginning for the world. I wonder what, uh, as a kid, you thought, or what stood out to you uh, from the story of Noah uh, when you were a kid? What stood out to you? Do you want to give me some hands, or I'll come up with some ideas myself? Yes, Brian. How do you get all those animals on the ark? Great question. Yes. What's a cubit? How do the animals not eat each other? How were the planks fastened together? What was the smell like on the ark? That's a great one. Noah's really old. How did he build a really big boat? You know, and then, you know, there's, there's the questions that kids and adults ask. You know, does God really love animals? Because they all seem so happy on the ark. And then there's the things we get distracted about. Uh, how do you put the planks together? How did he do that? Uh, was it smelly? What about, like, did kangaroos make it onto the ark? Like, obviously, what? How? And I think for all these details and for all these distractions, as fun as they, as fun as they are to muse over, we miss the big picture, which is the story of Noah is a story about a new beginning for the world. It's a story about a fresh start. How do we know that? Well, the picture of the flood of waters covering the earth reminds us of what the earth was like before God created it. Genesis 1, verse 1, and Genesis 1, verse 2. You've got Bible there, you can flick back. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You can imagine a watery blob. God takes the, the earth from the chaos that it's in at Noah's time and he turns it back into that watery blob, full of potential but unmade. God's recreating the world. It's a do-over. It's a new start for the world. I like to think of Play-Doh. You get a ball of Play-Doh. You create something with it. You're not happy with it. What do you do? You mush it all back together again so you can remake the world. That's what the story of Noah is about. The story of Noah is about a new beginning for the world. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want to ask four questions of this new beginning of the world, which is firstly, why, why does the world need a new start? Why does it need a new beginning? Secondly, who gives us a new beginning? Why do we get a new beginning? There's a good, good thing to think about. How do you be a part of the new beginning? So firstly, why do we need a new beginning? We need a new beginning because the world is ruined. Have a look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Uh, we, we all experience something of this. Violence here is talking about the wrongs that people do to one another, in a very general sense. Uh, and it doesn't have to be physical. 
It can be emotional, mental, social. It can be racial. It can be verbal. It can be on a domestic level, on an international level. A lot of my friends have a saying for when life feels like it's a little bit out of whack, and that is, that's just life. That's just the way it is. But if you know the story, and if you're listening to what God's saying this morning, he's saying, no, this is not the way I created the world. I created the world good. I gave humans the task of spreading my good order throughout the world. But now in Genesis 6, we read, the, world, the earth is filled, not with goodness, but with violence. So we all feel something of that. We all experience something of that. But why is the world like that? Have a look at verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And verse 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. There are two ways about thinking about the flood and why the flood comes. The first is punitive. We looked at that last week. It's a good, just judge giving the criminal, the offender, exactly what they deserve. That's one way of kind of looking at it. There's another way of looking at it which stands out in this passage, and that is that the natural consequence, if I can put it like that, of our rejection of God, and the natural consequence of sin, of going our own way, is corruption, is the flood. One commentator put it like this, chaos is the natural consequence of corrupt conduct, which afflicts the earth like a virus, attacking its stability and demoralizing its integrity. The deluge that follows is the final outcome. It's as if God is saying, the people are corrupt, and I'll let their corruption corrupt them totally. That's what the flood, that's one way of thinking about the flood. One of the applications for that, for us, is it's not as if there are just multiple ways that are all perfectly good in which we can live. It's not as if going my ways are just arbitrary, going God's way is good, my way is arbitrary, just different. Living your life your way is going to ruin your life. Not living God's way is going to corrupt your life. It's going to destroy your life. Sin ruins your life. It's not just that God's upset with it up there in the... It's that you're living in a way which is not the way in which the world is designed. You're designed to live in this world and, and you corrupt your, yourself. That's what sin does. And not just your own life, it starts to ruin the lives of people around you. And it just, and then corrupts the whole world. That's what living our way does. We understand this when we think of lying. You learn that pretty early on in life. I remember once, this just came to mind, but I'll go, I'll go with it. Uh, I remember once I was playing an egg and spoon race at a friend's party. And I was eating a minty just a moment before. And I put that minty on the spoon and then I put the egg on top because I realized the minty is quite sticky. And I ran that race and I won that race. And then I had to sit by myself for the rest of the party. 
uh, because somebody found out. Lying will ruin your life. It destroys the party. Not forgiving others. We're meant to forgive others because at least it opens up the opportunity for peace. And we pretty quickly learn that holding on to a grudge doesn't help our lives. There are other things in our life that are not so obvious. Other things within our culture where we think everyone's doing it. It's rational. It makes sense. It makes financial sense. It feels good. It feels right. It seems right. There are other things in our life that are not living life God's way but our own way and they will ruin your life. It'll destroy others' lives. It'll ruin the world. That's why we need a new world, a new start. So who's going to give us a new beginning? Well, the answer is obviously God. You've worked that out. But it comes through in this text in an amazing way. You notice that God sees a reason for a new world. He sees that you need a plan. Then God comes up with a plan. Then God initiates the plan. Then God reveals the plan to Noah. Then he does the plan. Then he remembers the plan. And then he finishes the plan. It's God who saves Noah and God who remakes the world. Noah is not the hero of the story. Humanity is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. And something that comes through as well, as I was reading this afresh these last couple of weeks, this is, apart from Genesis chapter 1, here God just speaks. Whole, like almost whole chapters here is just God speaking. You will have seen the quotation marks here. And then the next part, of it, it's as if God speaks, and then the next part of the narrative is the narrator just saying, and that's exactly what happened. God speaks And that's just what happened. God speaks, and then that's just what happened. It's as if the control that God has when he's making the world for the first time, he has that here again. And and what we learn from this is that God does just as he says he will do. God is trustworthy. And so if we know it to be true of that situation then, of this remaking of the world, surely this resurrection, this new creation, this new life that God will one day bring, surely that will come true as well. God has done just what he said he would do and he will do it again. So God does this work. Uh, But why do we get a new beginning? Why would God step in and do this? Why? Why does God do this? That's point three, if you're paying attention. We're already there. How good is that? The answer, I'll tell you in a moment, the answer is profound. And the answer is different, makes Christianity different to every other faith system or belief system. It's remarkably good. It's impossibly good. And this is the first time it's actually mentioned in the Bible. And that is the idea of covenant. God makes a committed, God makes his relationship with us a committed relationship with us. A covenant, uh, technically speaking, is a formal binding between two parties. The most common form would be a marriage today in our day and age. I was here at a marriage ceremony yesterday 
And the guy's name was Matthew. So it was, you know, I was reliving the moment in many ways. But God decides to covenant with the world. He decides he's not going to give up on the world. He decides to bind himself to us in a legally binding way. That's the only reason there's a new start, because God connects himself to us in that way. But there's something different about his covenant with us to most covenants. Most covenants, like the marriage service I was at yesterday, the husband and the wife, they agree together about what's going on. They freely consent, and then they're both obliged to do things in that covenant. This covenant is incredibly one-sided. God doesn't ask anything of Noah. He doesn't consult Noah. And he doesn't ask Noah to sign anything. God covenants himself with us in a very one-sided way. It's not fair. It's better than that. Why, why does God do that? Have a look at, you might need to turn the page, chapter 8, verse 21. Chapter 8, verse 21. Why does God covenant with us in this one-sided way? After the flood, uh, Noah makes a sacrifice, and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. You notice in your Bible there, it'll have a little note to look down and it says that another way you could understand that line is for every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Last week, we saw that evil in the world was the motive. The evil in the world was God's motive for destroying the world. Here, evil in the world is God's motive for covenanting with the world, for keeping the world, for preserving the world. One of the morals of the stories uh, of the ancient Near Eastern flood accounts, I mentioned last week there are other flood narratives like this one. One of the morals that comes through is you've got to keep the gods happy or else they'll get you. One of the morals from our flood story is God knows we can't keep him happy and so he'll make a way. That's pretty precious, right? That's pretty amazing. God covenants with us because he knows if we had half of the bargain, we couldn't keep it. It's pure grace. It's because of mercy and kindness and compassion that God covenants with us. It's a, a commitment that involves both of us, but it solely and truly depends on him. And, of course, the ultimate act of that and where God makes a way for our relationship with him to be connected forever is through Jesus Christ, which is that ultimate act of that one-sided commitment where we should have paid for our breaking of the contract, breaking of the covenant, but God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to pay himself for our sin, for us, for our sake. Do you know 
Do you know that everything needed for you to be right with God has already been paid for by God? Do you know that? Perhaps you're exploring Christianity, perhaps you're thinking about the Christian faith. Do you know that if what, Jesus didn't die because anyone on earth deserved it? Jesus didn't die so that then you could do a little bit more to make up for what was lacking. His death pays entirely, completely, once and for all, for, for us, for our debt. Christian, do you know that God is committed to you? He is committed to you. Do you know that he's committed to you because of pure grace? Not because of who you are. He knows who you are. And he loves you still. Well, a committed relationship changes us. It changes how we respond when we're in a committed relationship. And so point four is uh, how do you be a part of this new world? Or how do you respond to this committed relationship? What's it look like to experience that and respond to that? And I guess the simple point is be a little bit like Noah. Because Noah's in a committed relationship. Be a little bit like Noah. Not totally like Noah because if you turn the page, you'll see he's just like us. But be a little bit like Noah. What do I mean by that? I think um, if you're in a committed relationship, you can feel secure enough and strong enough, uh, safe enough to behave in a particular way. Let me just flesh that idea out a little bit. I had a conversation with someone recently, and they, they asked me, uh, Matt, why does the Bible um, talk about marriage being the appropriate place for sex? Why is, why is marriage the appropriate place for that? And one answer among many, um, the simplest answer was that being in a committed relationship gives you security and safety. It's a, I'll be there in the morning no matter what happens kind of security and safety. Um, and so when you have that commitment that this person loves me no matter what happens, you behave in a different way. You can be free to be yourself and enjoy yourself in that relationship. That's what's happening here on a global level when God covenants with humanity. He invites us to enjoy a new relationship with him. And here's what we can do. Here's how we can be like Noah. The first thing you can do when you're in that relationship is you can agree with God. You can agree with God about the world and about yourself. You can agree with him. What do I mean by that? You'll notice that one of the descriptions of Noah at the beginning of 6 verse 9 or 10, is that um, Noah was righteous man, blameless among the people of the time, and he walked with God. Now, walking with God in the Old Testament uh, isn't about sinless perfection. It's rather about agreeing with God. I was uh, teaching Scripture this week at Willoughby Public School, and there's a boy in my class who pulls apart what I say. He's very astute. And I, I said this week, I said, um, God wants to be your friend, whoever you are, 
no matter what you look like, what clothes you wear, you know, etc. God wants to be your friend. He'll accept you as you are. And he put up his hand and he said, uh, Mr. Straw, that's very different to what you said last week. <laughs> he said last week, you said God punishes those who don't live his way, but live their way. Uh, I gave him the whole lesson and myself the whole lesson to figure out what I was going to say to him in response. But I came back to him and I said something like, the Christian isn't a perfect person. The Christian is somebody who looks at their life and agrees with God about it. They say, I'm not a perfect person. You're right, God. I'm wrong. And I need your help. I repent. I'm sorry for what I have done. That's the Christian life. And you can do that if you know that God accepts you, not because of who you are, but because of his grace towards you. You can do that. You can agree with God. That's the first thing you need to do. The second thing um, you can do if you know God loves you, if you've experienced that through Jesus Christ, is that you can sacrifice the present for the future. You can sacrifice the present for the future. The, the story tells us that Noah was, it was a hundred years when Noah started building the ark. It was a hundred years before any rain fell. Noah wasn't living in the moment. It wasn't as if Noah saw some rain and he went, oh my gosh, I need an ark, let's go, build. Noah was living for the future. That's what Noah was building now. And so you can sacrifice, because Christians live like that too, because you know what's in store for us. You don't have to hold on to the present. You don't have to live for the present. You can live for the future. And you can build for the future. You can build a life that will float in the future. You can live for the future. You can sacrifice the present. The third thing is because you know that you can trust God, that he wants what's best for you, you can obey him. You can obey him. There's a beautiful refrain, and it was how our verse finished off um, today. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That comes up at least one more time in the text, and then he does it by his actions later on. It's this beautiful, simple obedience. And it's not just a simple obedience, but it's obedience against the odds. That description about Noah, he was righteous and blameless, it says, among his generations. That's a contrastive statement. It means that everybody else is going one way and Noah's going the other. When you know that God is for you, when you know that God wants what's good for you. You can obey God. It's easy to trust Him when you know that. You can go the opposite way. Jesus talks about, refers to Noah when He's talking about His second coming and what I might call the beginning of the new creation, the new world that we still look forward to. In Matthew 24, he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, up to the day of Noah and to the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until 
the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. The point is, is that the world might be oblivious to God's new beginning for the world, to the judgment and the salvation that is still to come. And they'll just live normally, getting married, eating and drinking. But if you know what's coming, you will live in such a way that you're prepared, you're ready for the new world. And that will be marked by agreeing with God. That'll be marked by building for the future, not just holding on to the present. And that'll be marked by having a simple obedience, an obedience that goes the opposite way. We can live now with a view to God's new start. And we can be ready for that new world because he has in our hearts today given us a new beginning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you give us um, a new world. Uh, But thank you that you, in our hearts, give us a new beginning, a new start. And we know that you're committed to us. Uh, We know that you're in relationship with us because Jesus has paid for what we left outstanding. Lord, so help us to live in light of your grace towards us. Help us even today. Amen.